This is the Monologue Podcast, a platform for new writing. We showcase original monologues read by actors to give you that theatre feeling from the comfort of your earphones. I'm your host, Daniela Down, and this podcast is brought to you by Orange Theatre Company. Pack your bags, brace yourself for the onslaught of cheek-tugging from estranged family members, and fill that mug of mulled wine to the brim. Episode 6, Homeward Bound, is about to begin. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining us for the final episode of the Monologue podcast in what has been another unprecedented year. Put any feelings of languishing and panic about the plague days aside for a moment and come with us on an audio adventure. I'm here, as always, with my co-host and one of the directors at Orange Theatre Company, Syra Ehrens. Hello! How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Daniela Down? <laughs> my full name am i in trouble but you also use my full name am i in trouble touche touche oh i'm good by the way i'm gonna jump right in with a question what does home mean to you i think it's the place where i feel completely myself and most at ease which is normally with my friends and family so it's people i no, i would say i feel the same that it's more a reflection of people and where I feel like the most history is, because I've moved around a lot. My home could be multiple places, but right now my family lives in Hong Kong. And so I would say home feels like it's there, but it's also here in Amsterdam because I've made a with home with my own family. Yeah. But then I also have some roots in the UK. So yeah, for me, it's bitty and complicated. The theme of today's episode is... Yes, thank you, Simon and Garfunkel. Homeward Bound is the theme that inspired the monologues today. Okay, yeah, thank you, that's enough. Because I don't know about you two, but at the end of the year, especially the last couple of years, thanks pandemic, family and friends can feel further away than ever. Especially if you're living in different counties or countries. As the year draws to an end, many journeys are just the beginning. The idea of home means something different to everyone, but becomes needed more than ever when the holidays roll around. Or does it? Our three monologues today take you on very different tales. From a woman in the embers of divorce looking back at what it is to build a home and then dismantle it, to a modern vagabond who goes home for Christmas but doesn't find the feeling of home, to a daughter who desperately tries to find common ground with her mum when she returns to her childhood home. A quick content warning before we start. This episode contains some adult themes and some Class A swears. Tis time for a monologue. Our first monologue, Home is Where, is a reflective tale of a woman tiptoeing over the burning embers of a divorce, contemplating what it was to build a home and then dismantle it. Performed by Erica Mindrup, an American actress based in the Netherlands, and written by Madalena Beltrami, a retired US customs manager and fledgling writer who has been LA-based for the past 30 years. When asked what home meant to her, she said, to me, home is the place you are understood best. Here is Home is Where. According to Mr. Webster, a noun is a person, a place, or a thing. I posit that a home can be all three. Inside the bricks and mortars of our youth, midlife, and later and greater years, it holds the people we love and sometimes don't. It is a place we make our memories in, good and bad. A home holds the things and dreams we create our lives with. <laughs> 
What happens when that home is threatened? In late 2017, fires devastated my city. Not quite a new occurrence for Southern California, but usually they occur in the hills and canyons and crevices where the populace is a bit less dense, or at least less dense by Los Angeles standards. The first week of December saw a raging fire close to Bel Air and the Skirball Center. When an early Monday morning greets the already beleaguered L.A. commuters with the closure of the 405 freeway from the Santa Monica freeway to the 101, it is as serious as a fire can get. Couple that with the raging fires in Ventura a day ahead and another in the Silmar region, and we have our very own version of Dante's Inferno without the pithy repartee. Some 100,000 people had to flee their homes at a moment's notice. Some had to remain quietly at their doorstep for hours on end, in suspense wondering whether they too would have to flee the flames. It got me thinking, what in that house should go with you, and what should stay at a time like this? What becomes important in those first few minutes? The documents that will keep the bureaucracies at bay, of course, like the passport, the birth certificate, the bank account, and the marriage license, or two as needed. Photographs would seem to be the next, most grabbable item, I suspect. Memories really are what you are grabbing. But what happens if, as my friends did, you sit there for hours on end, waiting to see if the evacuation ever comes? Do the priorities change? Would you have the time to keep looking around and grab just one more item, like the souvenir of the vacation long gone, or a painting that you fell in love with? When the car is full, then what? Do you keep trying to fill it, or do you at some point say, enough? Over the course of those hours of wondering how much of your home you can possibly save, does the importance of the trappings, the furnishings, and the tchotchkes become irrelevant? Does a painting mean no more or no less than a lamp? Does it become clear that you cannot save an entire lifetime in one small trunk of a car? And is it in that moment when a house is no longer the entity you thought it was? Does it become clear in that moment that the spirit, the love, the hate, the dinners, the tears, the Christmas mornings, and the Halloween nights are what made that place a home and not the carpet, the couch, the wallpaper, or the fireplace? Are you then comfortable in knowing that no matter what happens to that edifice, you can and you will create a home again, albeit inside four brand new walls? The threat to the home in this case is a very real, tangible, and possibly imminent fire. What is it like when a home is altered, not by environmental threat, but rather torn asunder by the very people who built it in the first place? What is it like for each member of the house when the two principles must part in acrimony and lack of love? My house undergoes such transformation now, as the divorce finalized by summer sees the winter's move of my former husband. There are often pockets in a house that belong just to one of the inhabitants. For some men, a garage. For others, a den. Women seem to gravitate to the kitchen for obvious reasons or perhaps an office. In our case, his domain was his garage. A place 
It's so filled with remnants of his tinkering and building and carpentry and love of tools that a car has never seen the inside of that structure. <laughs> For days, we watch with fascination as every single item accumulated for 25 years is looked at, wondered about, examined, and then either deemed worthy of the trip up north to his new home or relegated to the mounting scrap heap. The thought goes through this mind of why this or that was not thrown out years ago. This thought so clearly speaks to the fundamental differences that could not be reconciled for 27 years until the stagnation of that failure could not be endured any longer. On the one side of the marital bed, she who could not stand an item of clutter and often had to buy the same thing discarded at a yard sale the very next day. And on the other side, he who could not part with one scrap of wood or nail discarded on the floor. But that garage was part of the home built for all those years. No matter the reason, to see the dismantling of it is to feel the sadness of the loss of that quiet corner where he sought refuge for so many years. What about his sons? What do they feel to see the place so long identified with their father disappear tool by tool, plank by plank, jar by jar. No other room inside this house will see a change quite like this garage will. What will be left? What will this permanent change do to this home? Will there be a sigh of relief that the suffering of two people woefully wrong for each other is finally over? Will something take its place that will mend some of the broken hearts left over? Or will that room be irrevocably changed forever? Will nothing in there ever feel right again? Will that part of the house never be a home again to the inhabitants that remain? Will it take a brand new set of inhabitants to make it a home again? There are no answers. For now, it will have to suffice to be brave enough to ask the questions. At our advanced marital ages, the dissolution of a lifetime is not something easily done. It takes a type of courage or weakness that not many will subject themselves to. There are those that look around that house of pain they have created for themselves and never see a way to leave it. They look around their home, as my friends and many others had to do in the days of the fire, and ask, what would they take if they left this place? The answer for most is, I don't know. They could not possibly decide what to take, and so they would never leave, no matter what. They live their days without joy, without love, without happiness, because a decision of what to take could bring them to their knees, and it's a risk they're not willing to take. I took the risk. I must now wait to see if it was worth it. Build a home again, or if we are simply left with a shell that is a house. As always, we go backstage with the writers to find out more about their work and their creative process, which will hopefully inspire you lovely listeners to get your creative juices flowing too. And joining us this week, calling in all the way from sunny LA, is the writer of this beautiful piece, Maddalena Beltrami. Hello! Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks very much for being part of this podcast. We're so excited to have you. 
Yeah, I love how international it's becoming. And just before we started recording, you said about how it was through an Instagram hashtag that you found our platform. So very cool. And what was the hashtag? Or what was the hashtag? What the hashtag? <laughs> writers wanted. I writers wanted. Yes. Hashtag writers wanted. All right. Going to be using that one more. <laughs> <laughs> so am I right in thinking that this is an autobiographical piece of yours? And has it been cathartic to write it? Uh, yes, it was at the time. I'm kind of a personal essayist. So most of my pieces are like that. Um, you know, I had just gotten divorced. We were in the process of breaking up the house after 27 years of marriage. I have to be very courageous to get divorced at 60. And for me, it's always the question. You know, I had friends of mine that had to evacuate a fire in Bel Air a couple of weeks before and, you know, talking to them through the day of what they're taking from their house. You know, what, what's important? What are you taking? And then a month later, my ex-husband is dismantling his portion of the house. So, you know, one thing kind of rolled into the other and that's what made me write that piece. It's a, such a check-in moment as well after something like a big life event, like a divorce, you suddenly realize, oh, materialism today, it's a real thing. And we were wondering, is it a blessing or a curse to own so much stuff? I think it's definitely a curse. I mean, no offense to my ex-husband. We get along <laughs> great now, but he was a pack rat. He held oh. on to tons of things. And I think watching this process, you know, I'm just the opposite. I'm now getting rid of stuff. I don't want my kids to be the ones to find my dead body and have to empty the house. Okay. <laughs> I want it to be nice and neat and gone. So yeah, it's a point in your life. You start collecting because of memories. And then you get in a point in your life and it's like, okay, that's great. That happened 20 years ago, but let's move on. We need less stuff as we get older. You need to travel lighter now. Mary Kondo would be proud Mary of you. <laughs> She's like a, a cleaning guru. And when it sparks joy, you hold on to it. And if it does not, toss it away. <laughs> and then I have to get rid of my two grown sons because it doesn't spark joy that often <laughs> these days. <laughs> And um, what was your writing process to write this piece? Did you did you kind of write free form and then go back and, and refine and fill it out? Or did you have a different approach? I know, my writing, I'm not a professional. Uh, you know, I, I've been writing since I'm 18 years old and I never even showed anybody anything until I was 57. Wow. And uh, I, I'm a very fast writer. I'm a very um, lazy writer. I write it in my head. I write it in my head. And then I sit down. And I do it all in one sitting and, and I'm done with it. Um, seven years ago, I wouldn't edit anything. And I have a writing mentor who's been a huge help to me. Now I let it marinate because I have a blog site. I don't immediately put it on there. I let it sit for a day or two. I go back and I tweak it and I, um, and I work on it. So I've gotten better about doing that. And to give a very short piece of advice for people who you don't want to wait 40 years before they show their writing, what would it be? That's a tough one. I think people become writers when they're meant to become writers. Wow. You know, when it's your time, when you have that body and whatever you need for it, what it is that you're trying to say. And some people get it, you know, in their 20s and their 30s. And some people like me don't get it till their 50s and 60s. I, I just think, when it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So to, to kind of let it take its natural course and not necessarily force a circle into it. Right. Uh, and then it's people's circumstances. Yeah, uh, You know, I mean, to me, life got in the way. I mean, I'm not writing to pay the rent, you know, I'm writing because I love it and I enjoy it. So it's a different perspective when you're, you know, in your 20s and, you know, that's your focus. So I, I just think it, it, it all depends on where your writing needs to come from. 
Well, Madalena, I think it's a great perspective to have because uh, we always want to put something out and having it seen, but doing it for yourself and finding your voice is actually the main thing. Yeah, and you have to do it for yourself. My first blog I put up there four or five years ago, my friends, they were like, that's great. You're such a good writer, all this and that. And then, I, you know, four or five pieces into it, dead silence. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? Where'd they go? Do they hate this piece? You know, you can't be seduced by the praise without being crushed by the criticism. You have to get away from that. You have to write because you have to write. You start catering to fans and an audience, you'll lose the art. Yeah. (laughs) End of interview drop mic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Our second monologue, Homeward Bound, follows the journey of a man traveling home for Christmas, but having spent so many years away, is home what it was or is it him that has changed? Written and performed by Connor James, a software engineer by day and an actor and scriptwriter by trade. He is also the host and creator of The Daddy Issue, a podcast on queer parenting. When asked what home meant to him, he said, Home is where the heart is, which is why it's so complicated. We leave parts of our heart all over the world. Here is Homeward Bound. I love flying. Watching the world glide by below me while being physically cut off from it is pure bliss. That's not to say I'm a particularly busy man or that I live a particularly stressful life. I just like to make the most of the moments where I am forced to disconnect. Disconnect from the text messages, the emails, social media, the news. All of the things that do keep me busy, that do make me stressed, The things that didn't exist a few decades ago and now I know I could not live long without. Although you can't really tell from up here, the landscape expanding beneath the plain is that of my home country. Any minute now, the fasten your seatbelt sign will illuminate, and before you know it, I'll be showing my passport to grumpy border guards and waiting impatiently for my luggage to laze across the conveyor belt. If movies were to be believed, I should be feeling excited right now. Revisiting my place of birth for the first time in 48 months, being able to reconnect with my family, my friends, my culture, my people. But the truth is, I feel ambivalent at best. You see, when I was 18, I moved as far away from this place as I possibly could to study at university. And five years after that, I hopped on the plane for a quick visit to the continent that turned into a permanent stay. Each year I've lived away from my family home, my attachment to it has dwindled exponentially. And while I do enjoy seeing my friends and family, I'm not entirely sure that they see the real me. The person I waved off at 18 with all of the belongings in the back of his car, well, he's dead now. I mean, not literally, I'm very much still alive, but that version of me is gone and today, I struggle to see what it is I had in common with him in the first place. Yet that very version of me is the only one those I left behind can remember. It's as if when I left this place, their lives continued and mine was put on pause. Only to be briefly resumed when we met up again for coffee. As their lives grew in complexity and richness, my life, at least to them, remained on hold. What's worse is that as much as I'd love to share with them the rich and complex mess that my own life has become, 
I just don't have the time or patience. And as much as it pains me at times to admit, I don't really think my friends or family want to know either. My presence is simply a comfort to them, a false sense of security that they do know me, and I know them, and therefore they're still in control of their life as it unwinds before them at ever-increasing speed. I am but a mere relic in the museum of their lives, who must be polished annually but never tampered with. The only problem is, is the portrait they hold of me is a rough draft of the person that I have become. And that's not for a lack of effort on my part either. I've invited them countless times to visit me. I've offered them my sofa if they don't want to splash out in the hotel. And while every time the response is, we'll definitely take you up on that, in reality, I can't compete with a fortnight in the Mediterranean. <sighs> and don't think for a moment I honestly think I'm a saint here. I've missed birthdays, weddings, funerals, and births. I've watched the lives of people I used to see every single day change through the facade of social media. The ones I love are just as much of an enigma to me as I am to them, and I too let rough drafts of their portraits hang in the museum of me. Because if I let them change, I'm scared I'll not recognise them anymore. And that faint recognition of mutual ignorance to the fact that we've all grown apart it's the only thing that still binds me to my hometown. The very landscape I once knew like the back of my hand has slowly transformed year after year. A new store here, a new roundabout there. Sometimes I get lost navigating the very streets I grew up on. But the places that make me feel the most uneasy are the ones that have not changed at all. While they may go unnoticed to all who frequent here, to me, they are inescapable, haunting statues. A bar where I had my first kiss. A bench where I drank my first drink. A school where I spent almost every memorable day of my past life. All frozen in time, as if deliberately preserved to remind me that this strange place is indeed where I am from. But is that really true? Is this really my home? The answer is complicated. It's like putting on an old sweater that once was soft and perfectly fitting but now scratches at your skin and chokes at your neck. Every change is an itch. Every consistency a tug. I feel uncomfortable here. Like I'm walking through a botched simulation of my earlier life. Everything feels too small. Too tight. Not quite right. To be honest with you, the best part about visiting home is the going home. Kissing my mother goodbye, sitting in the window seat of the plane, knowing that in a few hours time I'll be opening the door to my apartment again, and sinking into my sofa, taking a deep breath in, hang out as I relax back into a world in which I belong. While it may not be the town or even the country I grew up in, I have grown into it. And it has grown into me, and I appreciate the fact that should I ever decide to leave this place, it'll eventually become another itchy sweater, another place I used to call home. I just know that in a few days' time, 
when I'm landing on the very tarmac I took off from just hours ago, I'll experience the same sense of comfort and belonging that everyone deserves to feel when they return home. We have the writer and performer of this thought-provoking piece on the line with us. Hello, Connor. Hey, thank you for having me. It's so great to have you. Um, first time on the Monologue podcast. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever been a guest on a podcast as well. So a lot of firsts today. Especially well, because you have also your own podcast, but maybe more about that later. the latest time. My first question is that um, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. And this monologue is kind of like you've gone inside my head and seen the thoughts I've had and feelings I've felt about growing up and living abroad because I've done that my whole life as well and I've always thought that one of the strangest things is that when you move around you effectively start a clean slate at every new chapter people don't know your history they don't really know your true character and um, uh, they don't know the real you as you described and I was going to ask you do you think this is a blessing or a curse? That's a very good question I think that depends on your outlook and I've seen it both ways. If I'm in a really bad mood or bad place, I think it's very easy to be like, oh, I wish I just stayed in Newcastle, which is where I'm from originally. But on the flip side, uh, although I have to watch the lives of a lot of very special people to me, I have to watch it through social media, through Instagram or Facebook. Um, I'm at least very blessed to know a lot of people from a lot of different places personally. And I think yourself as well. I know if I get on the plane to a certain place, there's a whole group of people in that area who I can reconnect with. Sometimes you have those friends where you can see them once every two years. And when you meet them, it's like you were never apart. Mm. You learn, I, I hope anyway, that people who have moved around, we learn how to socialize maybe differently to normal people. And we have to put ourselves out there, which maybe sounds weird, but making friends when you're 29 years old is terrifying. Yeah, there, there are a lot of downsides, which we don't need to go into. But one of the biggest upsides I feel is that third culture kids, people that have grown up in cultures aside from their own, become very good at assimilating. And as you said, making friends and kind of being a fish in water in whatever situation they get thrown in. So, And yeah. isn't also true that you tend to be more less judgmental and more open. I'd like to think that's true. Yeah, that's a nice quality to have. Yeah. Mm. Hey, and uh, you talk about the what, nostalgia and comfort of your friends and family seeing the old version of you. So I was wondering, like, do you experience it like that when you go home as well? Or was this simply that you um, used for the monologue as a trajectory or storyline? I don't know, unless they listen to us right now, if my friends and family know that I experienced this but I think especially with my friends they all live near each other they see each other all the time their lives have continued and my life has as well but my life has continued away from them and when I go back there's this huge gap between when I last saw them and now they know me but they know the old version of me and that version of me is gone he doesn't exist anymore um, which is very weird to say but moving around has really forced me to become such a different person so even though we know each other so well you meet, but you meet on a slightly different level. And that can feel a bit disorientating for me, but I don't think they notice that because they've stayed in the same place. But it can be very difficult at times to be sitting with people who you love and who you know very, very well, but to at the same time feel very far away from them, like even though they're literally in front of yeah, you. Yeah, listeners can't see because it's audio, but I'm, I'm nodding very vigorously <laughs> in agreement. Um, and what was your writing process for this piece? Oh, um, well, I started off a completely different piece. I imagined a situation of somebody who's on a date. You're just hearing their thoughts. 
So they were basically being quite a pessimistic character. He was saying, well, I know exactly what you're going to tell me and you're going to expect that I'm X, Y, and Z, but the truth is I'm not. Um, I didn't like that approach. It was very difficult to write. I actually have a background in writing as well. I did script writing at university. Um, so I can finally use my degree. Um, <laughs> so I decided to twist it around. And I was thinking about the time where I'm the most reflective, which is um, when I'm in an airplane. Being completely alone in that little bubble is when I always have my most creative thoughts and my most maybe emotional thoughts. I was always wondering, I'm happy to be home, but this isn't home anymore. I think when you're in the sky, you're literally detached from everything. And whether it's looking back or looking forward, everything feels possible. And talking about perspective, you created your own podcast, The Daddy Issues, which shares stories on queer parenting. How has it been to write and guest on this podcast? It's been um, a wild ride. What I found the most difficult with The Daddy Issues is it's not very scripted. So there, there is outlines, but I'm dealing with real stories from real people. And I love telling stories. It's my favorite thing is to tell and share stories. And for the show, I wanted to share the stories that you probably would never hear. And that's the stories of queer parents and the struggles queer people go through to achieve parenthood. So I think there's a very big difference between a documentary story and a fictional story. So I found that incredibly difficult to navigate, but I really enjoyed it. And hopefully I'll make a second series. But I also really, anybody who listens to this, who wants to make a podcast, do it. But it is so much work. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> I know, if only people knew how many hours you spend. Our final monologue is Suck It Up. It tells the tale of a woman trying to find peace in her childhood home, and with her mother in particular. But their views on marriage, or rather divorce, are so polar opposite, it's no wonder she feels conflicted. Written and performed by Aisu Sirinda, a recent graduate of performing arts and advertising from the university in Turkey. When asked about home, she said, My childhood home was my only home growing up and something I'll never be ready to let go of. Here is Suck It Up. You should have forgiven him, like I forgave your father, were the first sentences I heard from my mom as I came back home. I wasn't expecting something like, Honey, I'm so sorry and he doesn't deserve you at all. You can stay here as long as you need. I'm happy to have you. But I'm not gonna lie, a warmer welcome would have been nice. Throwing a hug, I don't know. My mom is a bitter old lady, stuck in her old ways and she has the most out-of-date opinions about marriage. For her, marriage is sacred. And if one does something bad, the other one should just... Suck it up and make them both miserable for the rest of their lives. Like my mom did for my dad. The poor bastard was so sad that even in his dying bed, he had this sorry look on his face. They both would have been happier if they got divorced. Or, I can't really say, my mom looked like she was enjoying every bit of pain she caused her husband for his mistakes. I am not going to be like my mom. I will not suck it up. My husband cheated on me. So I left, came back to my childhood home. That's what not sucking it up looks like. I will hold my head high as I head to therapy and I will not let this affect my future relationships. I'm not going to be bitter towards all men and wish them to drop dead. Only for a healthy while and then I'm going to let it go. I left a note before leaving. It said, you fucked her once, now I need therapy. In a desperate attempt that he will realize this is his fault and offer to pay for my psychologist. 
poetic, if you ask me. I might even make a song out of it. There is a specific smell in every house. I used to feel this a lot when I entered my best friend's home. It smelled like flower-scented fabric softener. Mine smelled like spices and food. A good kind. Not a certain kind of food, but just lovely food. And the home I shared with my soon-to-be ex-husband smelled like betrayal. Actually, more like Palo Santo because we were both obsessed with it. But as from now, I will only remember the smell of breaking my trust in love. I love my room here. We never changed the furniture ever since I was 10. My parents let me paint the furniture in any color I like. So they were blue at first, my favorite color, black in my teenage years because I wanted them as dark as my soul, which was not dark at all if you ask me now. Then white for college years, about the time I discovered yoga. It took me a lot of paint to change black to white. I used up so much paint that in the end I remember my dad saying maybe it was better to just get white furniture. I've never been one to waste, so I replied to this by putting on one more layer of paint over my closet and enjoyed the subtle dizziness caused by the chemicals. I never realized how hard it is to make a place home until I tried to make one of my own. In some ways, now, I, s I see it never really worked. I never got the feeling that I belonged there. Now it all seems like an illusion I forced myself into believing. Or maybe I should not aim for the feeling I have here. I was born to this house. Spent my nicest years here. My mom is cooking for me the same way she did when I was younger. I can smell it. I think this is her way of saying, it's okay. I've always found comfort here. That wasn't any different. In the end, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than home right now. Also, this is the first address my stupid soon-to-be ex-husband will check to see me and apologize. And I'm kind of looking forward to throwing stuff at him from the window. So cheers to fucking me, the one who did not suck it up. Originally from Istanbul, but calling in all the way from Florence, Italy, is Aisu Surinda the writer and performer of this monologue. Hello, thanks for calling in. Hi, thank you for having me. Aisu, so going home, especially for the holidays, can be both wonderfully nostalgic and totally frustrating. What is it like for you? For me, it's really not a thing of like going back home because I've been in the same home since um, almost I was born. So there is that. But I really enjoy being with family and just cooking special food all together and seeing the relatives that probably I haven't seen in years just like or months that come into my house and just seeing how they're how much they've grown as people and reconnecting. It, it always feel, makes me feel warm. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with this monologue? Okay, so I actually didn't know what homeward bound means because English is not my first language. So first I looked it up and then I was like, okay, okay, now I feel like I got it. And then I had this phrase stuck in my head, you fucked her once and now I need therapy. And I was originally trying to make a song out of it, but I had the melody for only that phrase, the, the rest was not coming. So the two just clicked in my head. I wanted to create a persona that was in a conflict that was uh, going through hard times and coming back home didn't mean what it used to mean. Uh, and I just came up with that character and I loved it because it also has a lot of things from me, but also it's a whole different person with a different present, past and future. Uh, so that's where it came from. I love that. 
I like that it came from a, a musical phrase that you wrote. Which instruments uh, do you play? I play the piano uh, and I sing. I'm, I'm also graduated from musical theatre. I did start writing musical short films over the past year. So I was like, okay, maybe this one isn't supposed to go out in like a song sort of way. This was also my first monologue that I've ever written. This is so cool. We have uh, your world premiere. <laughs> um, the character talks about needing therapy and is writing, or, or maybe it's music, is that therapeutic for you? I feel like all sorts of arts is, but it just depends on where I need to find therapy in that moment. So for example, I was in a place in my life that I wasn't really actively doing anything because I just graduated. So all I had in my mind was ideas and I really didn't know how to express myself. And that was creating a sort of pressure on my artistic self because I'm really success oriented. So I had this pressure and then I saw your monologue podcast uh, and then I was like, okay, this, this is it. I have to express myself with this format. And I wrote the whole thing in like 20, 30 minutes and I felt so relieved as I let that go. But this can be like a one-time thing. So it's not like writing is my therapy. Sometimes I can express myself with songs. Sometimes I can dance for it. And then sometimes now writing it proves the theory again that when something really is authentic, it comes out naturally without any force. And uh, you just telling us that you wrote this in 20, 30 minutes because it came from a place of authenticity and necessity. Um, yeah, it's, it makes sense. But it's also the, the frustrating thing with writing because it's like the genie in the bottle. Huh? Like, mm. when does it come out? There has been some times that I was trying to write scripts and I was really trying hard and I felt like I was trying too hard. And then mm -hmm. after I looked at it, like one week, maybe I didn't touch it. I realized, okay, but this is nice, but there's, this is nothing from me. If it doesn't touch me, it's not going to touch the audience. You mentioned before about being success-orientated and something that I love about the monologue format is that because it's pretty short form, you know, 800 to 1100 words, as you said, you can sit down and you can write it in 20 minutes. Maybe it takes you two or three hours, but you can kind of complete it in a fairly short amount of time and then sit back and feel ownership and success and pride over something that you've created. As you said, you try a script, maybe you half write a song, mm -hmm. you start sketchbook and then it never goes anywhere and you don't get that feeling of completion. And I think that's something that I love about this format and was one of the reasons of starting this podcast is because I think it's nice for creatives to be able to put that stamp on it and be like, yeah, I did that, I finished that, it's good and now it's out in the world. And it's also great advice, you know, staying true to yourself, being authentic. Maybe that's the other meaning of homeward bound. Authenticity. Full circle. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes back. coincidence that this episode's theme was also a song name as well as the last episode but hey I kind of like it and speaking of episode themes if you have an idea for a theme that you'd like to see in our third season next year send us a direct message via Instagram or send us an email to info at orangetheatrecompany.com Send us your theme ideas today or by the latest, January the 15th. As always, you can find all the info in the show notes. Keep up to date about our new season by following us on Instagram or Facebook at The Monologue Podcast. It's time for your lesser-known quote from a famous play. As it's the festive season, today's quote is from the all-time classic A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens 
which is technically a book I know, but it has been staged countless times and in countless ways. It recounts the tale of the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge, who, on Christmas Eve, is visited by ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. The quote encapsulates the joy of travelling and homecoming. Every traveller has a home of his own, and he learns to appreciate it the more from his wandering. Why not slip it into someone's stocking? Or write it on a Christmas card? We are coming to the end of the show, so it's time for a job opportunity. <laughs> But sadly, it's a uh, unpaid one. This podcast is made possible by the amazing talent that is you, our listeners. Even though this is true, and we repeat it every episode, it is not the whole truth. Because it's also made possible by the amazing talent and work that goes on behind the scenes. Q, one of our editors and all-round talent at Orange Theatre Company, Diana Makari. Sadly, she is leaving us. So we're looking for someone to fill her very large shoes in editing this podcast. A round of applause, please, and let's bring her to the mic. Diana. Hello. Hello. Finally on the, the other side of the microphone. It's strange being on the other side. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the editing role entails and how you found it? Well, you get to work with two incredible women and you listen to loads of interesting stories and people coming from different parts of the world and then you go home and you puzzle everything together. At the end of the day, it's also kind of like um, the director of a story as well because honestly, the editor is the, really the one who yeah. makes the story. I'm right? drunk with power. <laughs> I can edit you out. I can edit you in. No, but seriously, it's it's just amazing to hear what people have to say. And yeah, hopefully make it, bring it to light in a in a nice way. And what would you say an editor would need uh, if they want to come on to the podcast? To start with, enjoy storytelling. I think that would be a big one. But also working under pressure and making sure that you hit those deadlines is also very important. And you use which program? Uh, I actually edit in Adobe Premiere, which is probably not ideal because it's not an audio app. So if you've got experience in anything else, that works too. Me, as the, the basic last that I am, I use Audacity. So we're pretty open to whichever program you want to use in the editing. Yeah, so we are looking for an editor for this podcast and it doesn't matter where in the world you live. It can be Amsterdam-based, America-based, UK-based, or wherever. You need to have a passion for storytelling and audio editing. So are you the one joining our pod family next year? Then send us an email to info at orangetheatercompany.com. That's a wrap, folks. Syra, thanks for hosting with me. A round of applause, please, for Madalena, Erica, Connor, and Aisu, without whom the show would not be possible. And a big thank you to James Cook, who made our original theme tune and music. If you want to know more about his work, head to jamescookcomposition.com. This podcast was edited by Diana Makari and Daniela Dow. Bye-bye. Dag. Doei. Ciao. Adieu. Doigin. Auf Wiedersehen. Dajen. Sayonara. Au revoir. G'day. Toodaloo. Adios. And das Vidanya.